to, to summarize last week, to make, it, make a simple point, um, Peter, who had just done great, you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, then immediately after that did horribly. Because when Jesus went on to explain what that meant, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, and that means I go to Jerusalem and I will be betrayed, I will suffer, and I will die, and then return, rise again. Peter couldn't handle that, and so he took the Lord aside and rebuked him. Can't not say that and not smile. <laughs> he rebuked the Lord, and the reason for that was, we talked about this, that Peter was moving from a, a false set of assumptions, a false worldview. He had an assumption about what the Messiah would be, and when Jesus told him, yes, I'm the Messiah, here's what that means, it didn't fit with Peter's assumptions, and so Peter kind of went off the rails in his response to our Lord. And so then Jesus had to bring the conversation back and explain not only what his Messiahship meant, but what it meant for his followers to be his followers. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. That has to be the mindset of the believer, the one who would follow Christ. We would follow him, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. And then in the conversation, which again, I was so appreciative of, I was asked uh, the real question, can you tell me what that looks like in my life? How, how, as an individual believer, if I accept the premise that I have to completely rewrite my basic assumptions and then live from that whole new perspective, self-denial, taking up the cross, following after him, what does that look like? Can you tell me? And I said, no, I cannot, because it's not my cross. Each one of us being told what that will look like in our individual walk with Christ. Through the process of salvation, accepting the free gift of eternal life in Christ, my sins separated me from God. He paid the price for my sin in his blood. I am made alive through the power of the resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit so that I can step into relationship with God. But from that point forward, it gets much less universal as we all have a unique relationship with him that he walks us through. He calls us into that unique relationship and figuring that out, that's part of a lifelong conversation with God. That goes on for the rest of our life. It talks about working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what that's talking about. Walk, figuring out and walking out what that looks like to be a follower, right? That's a product of waiting on him and listening to him. And that's what last week's message was all about, was the waiting and the listening in replace of a very strict, rigid, legal code that Peter had been used to before. You know, if you think about it, Peter's worldview before he figured out that Jesus was the Messiah was all based on legal code. No questions. You knew everything. You knew what to do. Offerings were all, you know, described. Sacrifices were all laid out. No, no big, no, no mystery. You just did what you were told. And now Peter is introduced to this life of self-denial, taking up one's cross and following after him. That's not laid out at all. And so it creates this dependence on listening and hearing 
handled me. And there's freedom in that, but there's also a lot of challenge in it as well. So that's where we're at as we step into this morning's verse. It follows very closely on last week's verse. So Mark chapter 9, beginning in the first verse, passage of scripture a lot of people have questions about. He was saying to them, that of course is the Lord, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles or dwellings. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer. But they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them except Jesus alone. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask, Father, you'd open our mind and our heart to understand it, both it is spoken as it is heard, Lord, that in the processing of it, your spirit would fashion Christ's character in us. That's our goal this morning. Father, your son's character fashioned in us. Amen. So we come to the portion of the text known as the transfiguration. And... Um, Want to know what that's really all about. What is the transfiguration all about? And of course, to answer that, we first want to make sure we set the setting, the context. Then we can consider what the text actually says about it so that we can ask the question, what does it mean? So first, context. Again, last week's passage completely sets the context for this. You know, the paragraph break, that's just the convenience of the publisher. It goes right from the end of chapter 8 right into the first verse of 9. We've been talking about Jesus' identity, all that means, and then the meaning of that to the disciples, a new framework for life. And it ends with this. The last chapter ended this way. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angel. So the subject is shifting to the issue of the kingdom of God coming to earth in Christ's return with his angels, right? Jesus has been saying, who, this is who I am. This is what it means, what it means for me, what it means for you. And then he talks about moving into that new perspective of our lives with the understanding that everything is to be made new with a focus on his return. Right? Verse 1, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come or when it comes with power. It's, it's really kind of simple. We're talking about this new mindset, about seeing things correctly, and for some of you, that transition is going to start a lot quicker than you're expecting, like a week from today. That's what happened. It happened a week later. Verse 2, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. Aren't you glad he took Peter? Peter just blew it, right, big time. So bad that went badly that when Jesus rebuked him, he identified him with a mouthpiece of Satan. I can't think of it getting much worse than that. Peter's, Peter's mistake was enormous. And yet, Jesus doesn't say, okay, bucko, back of the class with you. 
Nope. Brings them right along with him. James and John, those three that had formed an inner leadership circle, and they go up the mountain together. Jesus took him with him. Now, Luke adds they went up to the mountain to pray. It wasn't just a hike. They went up to the mountain with a purpose to pray. And when they got there, Jesus is transfigured before him. Huge word. And we've talked about this word before. Uh, the word in Greek is metaphorao. Metaphorao. It rolls right into English as metamorphosis. So the, the visual of the metamorphosis is what we should have in front of it. And, and I didn't get a chance to warn. So... I apologize to you, Shalom, for using you as an example without getting your permission first. But it was so beautiful. Those who saw it will never forget it. She knows exactly what I'm talking about. Years ago, years ago, she did this beautiful thing with a sleeping bag. We were having a, a, a group camp out. And she did this beautiful presentation where she got in the sleeping bag and she had the wings. How many remember this? Am I the only? Ah, they remember it, of course. Right? She had the butterfly wings all in her. And what I remember so much about what she did, she was kind of like rolling around and struggling. And she came out of the sleeping bag, and then kaboom, the wings came out. It was absolutely magnificent. I will never forget that. Thank you for doing that. That was absolutely marvelous. But that's the visual we should have uh, in mind, right? Jesus was metamorphosed. The word means to change form. It's meta, which means after, right? And morpho, which means, again, to be formed. It's the verbal form of morphi, or form. Now, it's interesting um, that this term metamorphosis is not used very commonly in Scripture. Um, it's only used with regards to the transfiguration. And in the transfiguration, in Luke's account, but he doesn't even use the word because it was very common in Hellenistic theology, and Luke evidently didn't want to cause uh, any confusion. But the idea of, of formation, not metamorphosis, but morpho, formation is not foreign to Scripture. Multiple times, Scripture talks about Christ's character being formed in us, an internal change, just as the caterpillar becomes the butterfly. But, but here's the point, and I think many of you know this. The difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly is completely external. It's all in form, right? The DNA of the butterfly is the exact same DNA of the caterpillar. The DNA that forms the butterfly is already present in the caterpillar. And the DNA in the butterfly is the same DNA that was. Internally, there is no change. The essential nature hasn't changed. Only the outward form. Now, that does not mean the difference is only visual. Some have suggested that the disciples just saw Jesus differently. They had like a, an insider perception. That is not accurate. Jesus was changed in his outward form. But nothing changed about the essential person that he was. Jesus was as he had been, the Son of God. Fully human, fully divine. But they had been seeing human form. Now they are seeing a reflection of his divinity. That has what had changed, right? Interestingly, when Mark describes this from the perspective of the disciples, the only thing that Mark describes is the change in his clothing an interesting point. Now, uh, Matthew talks about the change in his face, 
But Mark only talks about the change in his clothing. But it's significant the way he describes it. He says in verse 3, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white. Now, neither one of those colors refers to white as, as a color. Neither one of those words, although I, I know there are some artists who will say white isn't a color, but for the purposes of this morning, bear with me, we're going to call white a color, all right? Both of those words refer not so much white as a color, but of the brilliance, the presence of light, light so powerful as to eliminate everything else that's not white, radiant and white. The term radiant uh, is a really old word. It goes all the way back to Homer. Homer used it to describe uh, the armor of Achilles, which was a gift from the gods. Again, that's probably why Luke avoided the word. Um, it's, it's, it's brilliance. It's brilliance beyond our ability to look at, right? White, and then Mark adds this, as no launderer on earth can make them. There's no way humanly possible to make garments as brilliant as the garments that they saw Jesus wearing in this transformation. And that distinction, I think, is significant. And that is because a garment of human manufacture, a garment that has been cleaned by human cleaning processes, can only reflect light. The whitest white we can imagine is a white that reflects light from something else. This is a white. This is a light that radiated from within. As if to say, Jesus' character, his divinity, was literally expressed through the garments. The garments incapable of concealing the brilliance of his essential nature. The brilliance of his divinity. Brilliant, radiant light emanating from Jesus himself. What's also significant in this is that for all that's going on, the disciples never questioned that they were asked looking at Jesus. So in a marvelous way, his humanity remained evident to a sufficient degree that even though his entire appearance is changing, a light beyond our comprehension, with a whiteness beyond our understanding or description, yet his humanity came through. Why? Because his essential nature was what was being expressed. The person, as well as the God, who is Jesus, was emanating from his, from his being and being seen. No surprise that the disciples were terrified. Verse 4 says there, the, he appeared with Moses and Elijah. One of the great questions of the text is, how do they know it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, they didn't wear name tags. Right? Um, either the nature of the conversation. Another one of the gospel writers says they were specifically talking about Jesus' upcoming crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Maybe Jesus addressed them by name. I mean, that allows you to, you know, use a little imagination. Hey, Moses, long time no see. I mean, I don't know. Jesus may have addressed them by name. There's a personal relationship there. Also extraordinary about this moment, if you think about it, I mean, if I were, if I were orchestrating this, and, you know, Jesus is going to manifest his divine nature, and, and there's going to be a conference to discuss the details of how that's going to happen. And, and I'm, I'm like the father, and I'm going to send my appointed messengers, my servants, you know, to arrange the details. I'm sending angels, you know, Gabriel, somebody like that. Isn't it interesting? I, I can't explain it. It's just something that I note, and I offer for you to think about this if you wish. Um, Moses and Elijah, two human beings. 
God sent two human beings, unique human beings to be sure. He sent two human beings down to earth to discuss with Jesus how this was going to work. I think he has so much more in mind for us as his people than we could possibly imagine. Now, I don't mistake, my, don't mistake myself for Moses, don't worry. And I'm a far cry from Elijah. But I think he has plans for all of us in the orchestration and the working out of his will that would blow our minds. Put yourself in Moses and Elijah's spot. I want you to go down and talk to my son about what's going to happen on Calvary. Are you sure you don't want to send somebody else, Lord? Right? Especially Moses. You know my track record. You know. He has such incredible plans for us. So he sends Moses and Elijah, and they're speaking with Jesus. Finally, in verses 5 and 6, and I think it's really revelatory, Peter speaks. And Peter's words express this reality of this process he's going through. This tension between his old mindset and the new mindset that Jesus has told him back in the previous chapter. you got to get this new mindset. you got to get a mindset of God. Get your mind not set on the things of man, the things of God. Peter, you need this new mindset. You know who I am. You've made that declaration. Thou art the Christ. But you've got to get your perspective, your values, if you will, your paradigm changed. And Peter's really torn. So Peter says, Lord, it's so good for us to be here. We want to build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. What's he thinking? Old Testament ideology. You got a deity, you need a temple. You got something holy, you need a dwelling. Very much coming from that Old Testament perspective. So Peter's words aren't really as kind of as absurd as they strike us. No, he's just looking at it from a very much Old Testament contemporary theology perspective. He's still headed off the rails, right? He's still in process. And so, verse 7, just as Jesus had had to interrupt him in the previous chapter and rebuke him, so now the Lord speaks, God himself. Verse 7, a cloud formed overshadowing them. What is that? A cloud forming over. That's taking Peter right back to the Old Testament. God taking as a starting point where Peter was. Peter's still thinking Old Testament, temple, deity, that kind of thing. Go back to the Exodus experience, the cloud overshadowing the temple. We'll start there if that's what you want, Peter. The cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my son. This is the statement you made, Peter. This is your affirmation. You are the Christ. You are the appointed one. Yes, this is my son. But what you need to do, Peter, is not so much worry about building a tabernacle or some kind of tent or some kind of structure that might contain or might express his deity. What you desperately need to do is listen. Listen to him. What command could be simpler? You might say that Peter at this point required a divine intervention. You know, we talk about interventions in people's lives when they're having a really crisis kind of a thing and there's a solution, but they're just not getting it. You call for an intervention. Well, this is like a divine intervention. Peter's not getting it. So the Father himself intervenes. Peter, you need to listen. There's a cloud. They're completely enveloped by it. There's a voice. 
All solid Old Testament visuals. This is my son. Identification, his affinity, and the approval. We expect, Peter and, and us, we expect rules. We expect tablets. Got a new set of tablets for you, Peter. Nope. Laws. No, instead, it's simply this. Listen to him. It's a command. We get our word acoustics from that. You know, if you think about it, every Sunday... You're probably aware of this. Before our worship time starts, the worship team, along with the person doing sound, some time is spent arranging the acoustic system, right? So you got to get the acoustics. you got to get the sound right, right? Because if, if one instrument is, is too loud, it throws everything out of balance. Or if a voice is too loud or anything is not right and out of balance, it, it, you don't get what you're supposed to get, right? You have to set up the sound system. You have to balance the, the sound system because you want to hear the right thing. In the very same way, what God is saying to Peter is, Peter, you need to adjust your sound system, man. you got things you're hearing that you shouldn't be hearing. You've got sounds, and they may be good sounds, but they're not the sound you should be hearing. You know, let's face it, for all that happens up here, what we really count on is the worship leader's voice, Right? You want that to be the thing you hear so you know where we're going, right? Other stuff's good, but you need the worship leader's voice so that you know where we're going in worship. What God is telling Peter, you need to adjust your sound system so one voice stands out from everything else. And that is the voice of my beloved son. Make the voice of Christ the loudest, clearest voice in your world. Make the voice of Christ the loudest, clearest voice in your world. We've talked before about the importance of hearing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God thy one. It's the foundation of Israel's relationship with the Lord. Again and again it's there. Hear, O Israel, calling the nation to obedience, calling the nation to battle, encouraging the people to hear to hear. You know, in the New Testament, I've said this before, it's repetition for some of you I know, there is no word in the New Testament that, is, that can be directly translated as obedience. Every time in your Bible you see the word obey, all it means is, all, all, all the, the word that is translated from says is listen really carefully. That's all it means. Listen really carefully. As parents in communication with our children, we know that. We say something, and we're told, I, I heard you. No, you didn't. I know you didn't because you're still doing what you did before. Or you're not doing what you should. I, yeah. Are you hearing me? If you're genuinely hearing, there will be a response consistent with what I said. That's all God was saying. Hear, O Israel. Pay attention. Listen. Right? And it is affirmed repeatedly in the New Testament, Hebrews especially, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, reflecting back on the Old Testament, today, if you hear his voice. Verse 15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, referring back to the wilderness experience. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as he has said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The point is, time and time again, for Israel, the problem was they just didn't listen. Period. 
That's the problem. And we have, we're no different. We're not one, we're one, one bit different. Most of us know Psalm 56, but we might not, I'm, I'm sorry, Psalm 95, but we might not connect it with this issue of, of hearing. It's a great old chorus we used to sing. Come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Remember that one? It's the one that goes on to say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah in the days of the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. That is such a critical distinction. Think about this. They had seen so much. They had seen all the miracles in Egypt. They'd seen the Red Sea. It walked through. They'd seen the Egyptian army follow them. They'd seen the manna in the wilderness. They'd seen water from the rocks. This entire litany of things they had seen, but they hadn't heard. Interestingly, um, one, one scholar, Wilhelm Mundel, German scholar, writes about the fact that um, Greek or Hellenic mysticism, theology, very, very um, uh, popular in the first century, emphasized seeing. And this was in direct contradiction to that. As humans, we are so geared to seeing is believing. Have you ever heard anybody say hearing is believing? And yet time and time again, God says, listen, hear, pay attention. You know, I, I said last week, I talked about how the process of salvation, recognizing that we're sinners, guilty of sin, separate from God, worthy of eternal punishment. The price for our sin is paid in the blood of Christ. His death, we sing the chorus, I owed a debt I couldn't pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Christ Jesus washed my sins away. How that, that whole process, in his resurrection, we have resurrection. That's what baptism is all about. That whole process brings us into relationship. The problem is we all too often stop there. Great. My sins are forgiven. I'm saved. My eternal life insurance is paid. I'm ready. But we never step forward. The whole purpose of all of that, the whole purpose of Christ's death on the cross, the whole purpose for his resurrection and including us in that is to bring us into relationship. And yet, all too often we stop and never really make a conscious effort to move forward in that relationship. What does that relationship look like? You know, again, I think I said this last week, as preachers, Christians in general, we're so fond of saying, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But do we ever define that relationship? Do we ever take the time to talk about what that relationship should look like? Part of the problem is because, as I said before, it's so individual and unique. You know, the, if you think about it, the plan of salvation is a universal. Applies to everybody equally. The methodology of salvation is universal. Every human being has to come in the door the same way, the blood of the cross. But the relationship that follows that is wholly unique. My walk with the Lord is so very different than yours. Right? Maybe that's why we're reluctant to try to talk about it or explore it or explain it. 
brilliant, I mean, wonderfully free as it is, it's kind of a challenge. So we, I think we're sometimes um, concerned about pursuing it. And yet that is exactly what he has brought us into. And that process of moving forward in relationship is based on hearing. Hearing his word. Hearing, we, we're not given the ten laws and how many stipulations of the Old Testament. We don't have that. Instead, we have this holy dependence on his voice. A holy dependence on his voice. Listen to him. That's what the transfiguration of Jesus is all about. He told them, you will see the kingdom of God coming with power. In the next two verses, he was changed before him. They saw him for who he was. His manifestation is the kingdom of God. The manifestation of the person of Christ is the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't come to bring the kingdom. His arrival is the kingdom. We've got to get that. His arrival, his presence, his power, his character, his essence revealed through us. That whole idea that his light, the light of his character emanated through his clothing, gave his clothing the appearance of whiteness, of brightness. I think that's the same thing that we're after. His character dwelling in us by his spirit emanating through us. I'm not, I, I used to think about the Christian walk as a matter of reflecting his light. I'm not satisfied with that. He poured out his spirit upon us. His spirit lives within us. Roman makes that so absolutely clear. His spirit lives within us. If there's any radiance from my being, I want it to come from his presence in me radiating out. That's the plan he has for every one of us. The manifestation of his character, the demonstration of any way of who he is, that is the kingdom of God. So like the disciples, we follow to the best of our ability listening with whatever knowledge and understanding we have, we try as we are able to realign our thinking so that our values and our priorities, the ones that we have lived by up to this very day, are replaced by the values and the priorities of his kingdom. We know that the religious legalism that used to be the plan, there's not the plan anymore, that didn't get the job done. But the fashioning of his character in us so our walk, then, tends to be a stumbling one. I'll speak for myself. You know. Trying to figure out what he wants in me. Trying to figure out what he wants from me and through me to do with me. And I stumble forward. And most days, I don't feel like it at all. I don't feel like I'm this instrument that God is using for his zippo. I mean, I have a golden opportunity to be his light and his presence at the state fair, and I'm thinking this person's an idiot. I use that word with reflection to my own mindset. Right? That's my mindset. That's not a kingdom mindset. Thinking, while I'm talking to this person who clearly needs Jesus, thinking that this person is, an, is not a Jesus mindset. I was not there. Okay? So we stumble forward trying to get this thing done. And if we're wise at all, we cry out, Lord, help me. Lord, guide me. Lord, speak to me. But here's, here's, here's what it all comes down to. You know that moment where you say in, in your frustration and your anxiety, Lord, speak to me. What do you do next? What's the next thing you do? Whatever you were doing before. 
right? Right? I like it. How about, Lord, speak to me, then stop and listen. Remember the great old chorus? Wait on the Lord. Listen to his voice. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is peace, sweet peace. But you have to wait for it. So when you find yourself crying out, dear Lord, help me in this moment. First of all, that you can respond with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for bringing to my attention that I need your help. That's a gift. Thank you, Lord, for bringing to my attention in this moment that I need to shut up and listen. Very important, right? And then wait. I think we have to be deliberate. I'm confident. It takes a deliberate choice in moving towards a Christ-centered value system, moving away from the self-preservation, self-service, material base that is ours by default. It's the world we grow up in. None of us chose it. We didn't choose a worldly value system. It was given to us, right? Moving away from that, we have to deliberately choose to ask him to speak and then take the time and the opportunity to speak. And here's the beauty. He will. He will. Time and time and time again in his word, he says, listen. The God who commands his people to do that will not refuse to speak. But we have to listen. Let's stand together. I ask, ask the worship team to come up.